24 through 29 as we look at the joy that the gospel produces. So if you've been with us for some length of time, you know that we've taken this Advent season to step back from the gospel of Mark, which we began on January 1st of last year, and will begin in the second Sunday of January in 2018. Um, We've taken a break and we've stepped into um, one of the most famous sermons, if not the most famous sermon that has ever been uh, delivered, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so um, over the past three weeks and going into this morning, we have taken um, a chapter. We took Matthew chapter 5 and we looked at the hope, right? The hope um, that God provides, the hope that the gospel provides. Um, And then we had a snow day, right? Um, But we've looked back and we've, we've, uh, we've briefly analyzed passages that speak towards um, and inform how God's people are not to be an anxious people, right? Um, But there is a peace that the gospel provides um, that calls us out of anxiousness and into rest in Christ. We see this modeled, we see this fulfilled ultimately by Jesus himself. And now, as we've said each week, there is hope for God's people that we might enjoy the same peace, right? Um, And so that's where we were uh, in week two. And then last week we looked at love in Matthew chapter 7. We looked at the love of God and we compared um, the love that our Heavenly Father has for us with the love that our earthly fathers, right, perhaps display and extend toward us. We see Jesus speak of um, evil, right, sinful, immoral people acting morally as it pertains to their relationship with their children, right? What kind of uh, father, when their son is hungry, gives them a rock instead of a loaf of bread, right? And so we saw Jesus. Jesus speaking towards this common grace that informs the way that um, parents, right, um, exercise leadership and care over their children. And then we looked at the love that our Heavenly Father has for us and that he sends Christ, right? He sends, uh, he sends the better bread that provides um, salvation, right? And eternal nourishment for his people. And so that's where we were last week. And then today we come into, um, into our, 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 last, our last portion of the Sermon on the Mount and we see the joy that the gospel produces again from a passage that is probably very, very familiar um, to, to some of us. Hope, peace, love, and today, Christmas Eve, we look to um, the joy that Christ provides, the joy that the gospel produces. And so that's an idea that we're going to be that we're going to be dialoguing about, right? Uh, back and forth as we kind of go through our time together today. And so let me spend just a moment catching us up because as you know, I encourage you as we started this Advent series to read the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, whether that's as a family, spend some time reading through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, right? Or, or individually spend some time reading through the Sermon on the Mount because there's a lot here that we're not able to cover week to week. And so um, to, to help us come into today's passage, I want us to look back at verses 21 through 23 of Matthew chapter 7, a very challenging portion of scripture. And so I'm going to summarize some ideas that we see communicated in those few verses as we prepare to go into verse 24. Um, Jesus says, in, beginning in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7, that not everyone who says, 
to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But instead, the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. And then we see, as we continue on through these few verses, we see a a group of people pointing Jesus toward their works, right? Pointing Jesus towards their works, their care for the impoverished, and their care for the oppressed as their merit for citizenship within this kingdom that Jesus has come to, to introduce and rule over. Now, there's certain gospel truths that we need to understand as we approach today's passage on the heels of what we see in verses 21 through 23. Because if we don't address it, then there might be this um, this unbalanced tension that we find ourselves in as we conclude our time. Because what verses 21 through 23, which we just reviewed, are not saying is that there are no observable works for those who enter the kingdom. Okay, let's say this another way. Jesus is not saying that the right response to the Sermon on the Mount is to do nothing. Okay, Jesus is not saying that that following after him is to do nothing, to live however we want. In fact, he's saying quite the opposite. I love what the New Testament scholar and and Anglican cleric R.T. France had to say as it relates to this idea, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and how it is to be applied by God's people. Now, as we work through this, we're going to talk about the strength that enables proper application of what we see Jesus encouraging here in the Sermon on the Mount. But what we have to begin with is this idea that there is a desired response for God's people as it pertains to what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. R.T. France says this, The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but instead obeyed. Now, now this is what distinguishes the Christian life and Christianity from, from other world religions, right? In that we approach this passage and we say that this is, this is not simply a solid moral teaching that anyone and everyone would do well to observe, although we can concede this, that society would be a lot less hectic if that were the case. But what we're saying is that it is not simply to be admired, but as R.T. France said, obeyed. In Christ, we see the one who has obeyed the will of the Father, okay? That's the hope that we have to cling to as we work through the remaining portions of the Sermon on the Mount. That in Christ, we see the one, right? The the one who has obeyed fully and completely and perfectly the will of the Father. And so we begin this week with this truth that produces within God's people joy-filled hearts, right? For those who have been made to see their condition as the scales upon our eyes fall away and we see our sin and we see our depravity and we see our need and in turn possess this poverty of spirit that we see, saw Jesus talking about in Matthew chapter 5, we see that there are, in fact, joy-filled hearts that result, right? And so how, does, how does, do we connect? How do we connect the season of Advent with what we see in the Sermon on the Mount? You see, the beauty of the Christmas story is that now, right, the, the long-anticipated Messiah, Right, the, the Christ has come. 
right? To, to commit himself in a way that we could not, in a way that we would not, fulfilling the law and shedding his blood on a cross so that his reward might be passed on to his people. We've referenced to this a number of times through the Sermon on the Mount, but it is, the, as Martin Luther says, right, that we see this great exchange taking place. And this next portion is, is huge. What do we want to observe this morning as we approach this passage in Matthew chapter 7? I want us to corporately, individually consider today the joy that we can have. Right, the joy that can be ours that we might possess through the assurance of stability in Christ. Right, joy is to be had. Our hearts this morning, wherever we're coming from, right, individually, corporately, whatever's going on in your life, there is hope for a joy-filled heart in light of what Christ has accomplished. We celebrate this every week. Like every week we do this, right? We celebrate what Christ has accomplished for sinners. And what we find as we do this is that it produces a desired obedience to the instruction of the Lord. Whose desire? God's desire. Right? It produces this ability within God's people, among God's people, to live in obedience to his statutes, to his testimonies, to his word, to love it and to abide in it, to look to it, to gaze upon it, to find hope and joy and assurance. What I want us to consider today is the joy that God experiences within himself. This past week, uh, myself and Max Smith, we've been reading through Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy over the past like seven months. And for those of you that know, it's very thick and it's very dense um, and it's very thick. Okay, um, And so we're going to be there for a while longer, I believe. But as we, as we read last week's chapter, which was really like an act of providence because we were behind and we found ourselves in this chapter coming into this joy uh, time in the Sermon on the Mount in the season of Advent, one thing that Willard emphasizes is, is how God exists and experiences perfect joy within himself that he now manifests in the hearts of his people as the most joyous being in the cosmos. This, this joy, this gratitude and understanding, kindness leads us unto repentance and obedience. This is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's where we're going to finish our time today. But now we've actually got to get to it, right? Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24 and reading through verse 29. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Jesus says in verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Verse 28. 
And when Jesus finished these saying, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. That's important. We're going to discuss that in just a moment. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We are grateful that you have preserved it, that your people might gather around it and celebrate what you have done for us in Christ. We are grateful that the entirety of your word points us to Christ. And we pray that through our reading of it today, that we might grow in a deep appreciation and adoration for Christ in light of this greater realization of the joy that we have been called into through the gospel. We pray that as we seek to understand and and apply what we see from this passage this morning, that we might respond with worshipful lives, desiring to live in obedience to your word, to the glory of your name. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we have one point, but it has two parts. One point with two parts. We see a call in verses 24 through 25, and then we see what I can best refer to as a cautionary tale in verses 26 through 27. There's a temporal and there's an eternal aspect to what we're going to see in this morning's passage. And so let's begin by rallying around this idea that Christ serves as a source of assurance and encouragement for the regenerate heart. That for God's people gathered together this morning, right, under the authority of God's word, we see and we affirm that Christ provides assurance and encouragement for us and in us. We see this in verse 24. Look with me at verse 24. Jesus says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now Jesus is is bringing the Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion and he does so with this call. Right to, to live in obedience to his teaching, a teaching that stands in stark contrast to that of the religious leaders. Let's consider the teaching of the Pharisees for just a moment. Let's consider the teachings of the scribes that we're going to see referenced in just a few verses. The Pharisees, while often uh, teaching and reeking of self-righteousness, Jesus focuses more on reliance and submission to God as opposed to the often empty ritualistic practice of the day. Through the words of Christ, we see a call. We see a call to explore the depths of one's heart as it pertains to the practice of sin and worship. This is the way that we as God's people, as we gather together each week and read, this is the way that we approach Scripture. Right? We, we see that our hearts are oftentimes pricked or exposed. They are cut open and they are spread out. This was not the practice of the Pharisees. We're able to see examples throughout the Sermon on the Mount, passages that we did not address as we worked our way through these three chapters, but but you can see various places where Jesus says things like, you have heard, but I say to you. 
Right? Jesus spends a large portion of his sermon bringing clarification to the intent of God's law and in turn drawing out our need for a substitute, for a helper. The teaching of Jesus, right, while, while providing instruction for righteous living, was both reliant on the supernatural work of God in his hearers to be lived out as well as emphatically authoritative. Let's say it this way, right, that in order for us to live out the obedience that this passage calls us towards, we approach... We approach this portion in light of what we've learned already, which is that the Sermon on the Mount is an impossibly high standard for us to achieve in and of ourselves. And yet we approach this passage this morning in which it's very clear that there is a call towards obedience to God's word. And so we look back and we go, okay, in order for us to even obey, to apply what we see in this morning's passage, we have to understand what we've learned already up until this point, which is that it requires a supernatural work within the hearts of people because we're not naturally bent this direction. And so that's our first, that's our, that's our first, uh, what would you call it? I guess concession. Right. We must concede that that in order to live out what Christ is is calling his people towards that is a reflection of wise living. There is a supernatural work of God that is required in the hearers in order to live this way. Now, in addition to that, we also see that Jesus's words are emphatically authoritative. This is emphasized by Jesus himself and recognized by those present. Let's look at verse 24 together. In verse 24, Jesus equates the the work of the wise man with obedience to what? Well, to to his words. He does the same thing in verse 26, highlighting the foolishness of the man who hears his words and then fails to practice them. In chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, as we've already introduced in our, in our time leading up to this passage this morning, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. At multiple points in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does something really interesting. At multiple points in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus equates his words with the will of the Father. Now, this is incredibly important because it speaks towards the identity of the Christ child, right, that we're celebrating in this season of Advent, Right? We, we, we're moving from this realm of, of baby born in a stable to, to a realm of baby born, right? deity in a stable, God among us, Emmanuel, God with us, moving into the neighborhood. Jesus, through the Sermon on the Mount, claims to have the same authority of God. Now, if we understand that point, if we understand the authoritative language of Jesus at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, It brings incredible clarity to the response of the people in verses 28 through 29. You guys with me? Let's look together at verses 28 and 29. It says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. 
Now, if you remember, we said this earlier on. It's hard because we've broken the Sermon on the Mount up into four weeks. But this would have been one section. This would have been one sermon. We took four weeks to do it. Jesus did it in just a matter of of minutes, right? He, he taught it all at one time. And so as, as the crowds have been sitting under the authoritative teaching of Jesus, we see in verse 28 that they are astonished by what he has said. Why? Well, because it runs in stark contrast to the teaching of the religious leaders of the day. That's what we see in verse 29. For he, Jesus, was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And so there's a clear recognition Right from Jesus, that his teaching is starkly different from the religious leaders of the day. There's a clear understanding and recognition from the religious leaders of the day that Jesus' teaching is different, and there's a clear recognition from those who are gathered around Jesus that his teaching is very different from the teaching of the day. Now let's connect these, this idea of Christ's authority and his teaching with the call towards obedience. Obedience, based on what we see in this portion of scripture, to the words of Jesus equate with constructing one's home on a rock. There are two men that we're introduced to in this story. Right? There's, there's, there's one, this first man, who hears the words of Jesus and his work is informed in that he constructs his home upon the firm foundation of stone. And then there is another man who has a starkly different response that we'll read about in just a few minutes. But this is an illustration that those who are listening to the teaching of Jesus would have grasped in a most unique way. Right? Among those that Jesus is speaking to are individuals who have been a part of constructing their own homes. And there's a clear understanding and a recognition of, of geographical, uh, unique uh, interests right? and points within this, within this area. The flash flooding, for example. We are not altogether familiar with flash flooding. In fact, when that warning comes up on my iPhone or on the TV, I really don't even know what that means, right? Because uh, it's really loud and obnoxious and typically highlighted in red or yellow, one of those things, right? Never good. Uh, But I don't really know what that looks like. I'm not too concerned with what is to happen to my home. Now, if you live in other parts of the United States, you're uh, you're more aware of what flash flooding does and looks like. Has anybody ever seen the movie Into the Wild? Have you seen this movie? It's like one of my favorite movies of, of all time. But you've got this character, right, Alexander Supertramp, who makes his way from Atlanta. And he goes out to, I guess, somewhere in the wet, maybe in the, in the west. It's like Arizona or something like that. And he parks his car, and he's sleeping in his car. And then just in the middle of the night, this flash flood hits him and, like, wrecks his car. Right? He, like, throws it against the side of this hill and, like, fills the whole thing with sediment, which works out really well because he's burning his money and leaving society anyway. You'll have to see the movie. I won't get into all the particulars at this time. But these guys that Jesus is teaching to here are well aware of these types of conditions. They're common occurrences. And so there's this understanding as Jesus is teaching that, okay, yeah, I get what you're talking about. We live in an area that is prone to this type of weather. And so if I were to construct my house like on the sand, on the ground, and a flood were to come, we've got, they wouldn't have known this, but we can, Alexander Supertramp flashbacks, right? Now, if I build it on the rock, then there is this firm foundation that the waters that are rushing through will not affect. 
So how do we, in 2017, understand the illustration that Jesus is constructing here? One commentator said this, that it is not enough simply to hear Jesus' call or even to respond with some temporary flurry of good deeds, which is an all-too-familiar occurrence, right, as it relates to our own existence and practice, right? Conviction sets in, and we say, yes, tis a new year. We're going into 2018. Time to turn over a new leaf, right? And for a moment, for a season, practices change, but then typically there is this regression that takes place. You want a great example of this? Go check out the gyms, right, going into the new year. Rather, this commentator says, we must build a solid foundation that combines authentic commitment to Christ with persevering obedience, with persevering obedience. And so what is Christ calling his audience to as he, as he explains this, this illustration and this idea of obedience within, within the kingdom of, of God? It is this, that there is a, 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 a foundational practical difference that must take place within the hearts of men. That it's not a call towards a temporary flurry of good deeds, but rather a life that is built on a foundation that combines authentic commitment to Christ with persevering obedience, right? That in good and in bad, right? That there is this commitment, that there is this foundation that has been established. And the foundation is Christ, right? That which is fixed is Christ. Again, all of this encourages us towards assurance. In Christ, our work will sometimes mirror good deeds done by others who are in the world and who are of the world. However, in the storm, the differences will become obvious. Jesus highlights this, right? You build a house on the sand and you build a house on the rock and you look at the two houses and you can say the same materials went into constructing both. They look similar. They're painted the same color, right? They have the same roofs and styles on them. The landscaping is is eerily familiar, right? Only in verse 25, we see that the floods produce a very different result. Verse 25 says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Again, there are both temporal and eternal elements that Jesus is speaking towards here. So let's attack the first element. The temporal is reflected in hardships that this life often presents us with that can oftentimes shake us. We would all affirm the reality of that statement, right? That there are experiences and hardships that we encounter in this life, in a fallen world as its residents that are prone to shake us from time to time. One thing that we want to avoid doing is connecting any any material possession with this idea of blessedness based on what we see in this passage. Let me explain that. The wisdom that Jesus is speaking of here. 
and one's material possession have nothing to do with the feelings that result. And so we're talking about the joy that the gospel produces. One thing that we want to be sure of is that the gospel does not produce a materialistic joy that is fed by obtaining more of this world until it just advances and advances and advances and continues to fulfill us and fill us. What we're talking about here is a joy that the gospel produces that we must understand is outside of worldly possession. It doesn't have to do with the house, okay? It's about the rock. It's about the foundation. William Barclay said it like this. Joy has nothing to do with material things or with a man's outward circumstance. A man living in the lap of luxury can be wretched, and a man living in the depths of poverty can overflow with joy. So as we consider right, the joy that the gospel produces, we must separate that. We must divorce that from material possession and understand that there is indeed something far, far greater that Jesus is speaking of and towards here. That's the temporal. Now, the eternal is reflected in the judgment of God. Right? It is to say this, that for those whose house has been constructed upon the rock, there is an avoidance of the tidal wave of God's judgment upon sin. We are sinners by nature. We are broken and we are in need of being restored. We are in need of being redeemed. What we see from this passage is an eternal element that speaks towards the ability of one to escape God's righteous and holy judgment upon sin because of the foundation upon which we are placed. Does that make sense? Right? That there's a temporal and that there's an eternal. That there's one who avoids the tidal wave and there is one who does not. Thus we enter the cautionary tale of verses 26 through 27. Look with me at verse 26 through 27. Jesus says, right, you've got one who constructs upon the rock and the rain falls and the wind blows and everything remains secure because of the foundation. This isn't a craftsmanship issue, right? This is a foundational issue. Does that make sense? Then you come to verse 26 and we see everyone, Jesus says, who hears these words of mine and does not do them. Okay, and so there's this contrast that we must look back to verses 21 through 23 and understand Jesus is not saying that the Sermon on the Mount does not result in a transformed life. In fact, it is quite the opposite. It better, right? A foolish man who built his house on the sand, verse 27, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and what happened? It fell down, and it was a great fall. So you've got one man, right, who who displays what Jesus refers to as wisdom. As he hears the authoritative words of Jesus and practices them. And then you have a second 
who heard the words of Christ and persisted in foolish practice. Whereas the first man found stability, the second man experienced chaos and calamity and destruction. Whereas the first man experiences the joy of God, we see that the second man does not. D.L. Moody said this, as it pertains to joy and obedience, the Lord gives his people perpetual joy when they walk in obedience to him. Right, what we see is that once, as one's heart is made alive, that there is this transformation that takes place within that gives God's people a desire to live in obedience to his instruction, right? No matter what we lose, no matter what is cast aside, that there is a joy that is produced. And it's this joy that overflows as we perpetually seek to walk in obedience to him. That is incredible. And that is vastly different, right, than what we might expect to be the response as we approach the scriptures and we see, okay, here is this live this way, don't live this way. Well, I'm not ready to surrender the don't live this way things yet and to live in obedience to God's word because these things bring me joy and these things seem to rob me of joy. What we find is that while these things might provide some degree of temporal joy, they also point us towards the emptiness that they will undoubtedly leave us with, right? We get this. You want a great example? Consider like six weeks after Christmas where half of the things that we open up tomorrow, we won't even know where they are or they will be broken or they would have been stolen and we will continue on just fine. The Lord produces this perpetual joy when we walk in obedience to him. This truth rang out in the heart and spirit of Christ as he approached the cross. A thought, a a reality that affects us here and now. I want us to consider the joy of Christ in light of the difficulty that awaited him upon the cross. Because we know that this life gives way to difficulty. And so how does the joy that God provides, how does it counteract and speak against the, uh, the sorrow that we are to experience in this life? Let's look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Amen? Yes, absolutely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, so how do we do this, right? How do we live this? How do we begin living this? How do we begin enjoying this? How do we begin finding our joy in this? We, verse 2, look to Jesus. We look to Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, which drastically informs the way that we understand this whole construction upon the rock thing, right? Right? 
That it requires, again, a supernatural work of the Lord, but for the joy that was set before him. This is incredible. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It is, a, it is an impossibility to approach the Sermon on the Mount. It is an impossibility to approach the season of Advent and the birth of Christ, Emmanuel, without also considering the cross. Despising the shame. And is now the hope of the resurrection seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. And so we ask this question, right? How do we, how do we do this? How do we seek to, to live in obedience to the Sermon on the Mount, to center our lives around the gospel, that everything that we do and everyone and everything that we are might be informed by who Christ is and what he has done? We look to Christ. We look to Christ. We look to Christ that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so how do we begin to apply what we see from Jesus, this call to and uh, toward eternal joy in Matthew chapter 7? How do we begin to apply this in our lives? As, as we kind of do each week, there's, I think there's this here and there's this do portion. Okay, so if you take notes, this is a great thing for you to write down. As we consider the, the, the wisdom, right, that results in walking in obedience to the statutes of the Lord, I think that we could say this, that we ought to make a habit of hearing from God, right, that we ought to make a habit of hearing from God, that we ought to make a habit of practicing the disciplines of scripture, reading, and prayer. Why? Well, because this is where we hear from God. Right? This is where God speaks to his people. It's in the word that we hear from God. It is in the word that we grow in an understanding of who God is and who we are. And as we abide in God's word and offer our thanksgiving to the Father through Christ in prayer, we see that we are in fact made wise. That we're made wise. And so, make a habit of hearing from God, practicing the disciplines of scripture reading and prayer. The second one might be this. Be in Christian community where corporate scripture reading happens. All of this produces this wisdom in light of who God is and a deeper understanding of who we are as we're pointed continuously towards Christ and desire to live in obedience to his instruction. And so be in Christian community where corporate scripture reading happens. We've already talked about it and we met for an hour last week to discuss it further. But here at Christ the King, that is found in DNA groups. That's found in DNA groups, gathering together with God's people and, and affirming the truths of scripture into one another's Life. There's a reason that we encourage discipleship through these groups. 
right? That they are how uh, we practice obedience to what Christ calls his people towards. They are application, right? And so be among God's people, reading and affirming God's word to one another. This allows us to hear from God and thus produces as his spirit enlightens us wisdom. Number three, be a part of a local fellowship, Right? Be a part of a local fellowship that encourages you through the proclamation of Scripture, encouraging you towards Christ and in Christ. To be a part of a local fellowship. And finally, live in service. Practice service. One of the most neglected aspects of the Christian life and one of the most practical practices by which we grow in an understanding of what God says in his word is through service to others, to practice service to others. This is one way that we follow in the likeness of Christ. But ultimately, ultimately we point to the majesty and the mercy of our King. Right, we point toward the majesty and the mercy of our King Jesus because it, is, because it is not, again, the craftsmanship that is the boast of Matthew 7. Right? There is obviously a, a quality difference of the work given in light of the origin from which it flows. But the boast of Matthew 7 is the rock. It is the rock that provides refuge from the storm. And that rock... And that rock is Christ. That rock is Christ. Thus, right, if we kind of follow the flow of how this works, we boast in Christ. We boast in Christ. We remember his sacrifice and we celebrate his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, this past week, Courtney and I, along with some friends, went to go see um, the, the Gettys, uh, which you may or may not know who that is. They are a husband-wife uh, duo of, like, of, of modern-day hymn writers. Um, and they did like a Christmas show in, the land, in Atlanta this past week, and so we were able to go and, and be a part of that. And, and I was reflecting back on some of the things that we heard and then exploring some more of their works this past week, which I've been introduced to before, but it was always good to be reminded. Um, and one of their songs, this is, this is, this is one of their lyrics. This is what they say, and it summarizes us and calls us into this idea in a really, really neat way. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Right, Christ is our Boast. It's never, it's never the construction, right? It's not the, the home that remains through through the flood, but it's always it's always about Christ. And so we conclude our time embracing these ideas that Christ calls us into repentance and fellowship with the Father. And in doing so, he makes available ultimate and long-lasting joy. That is where our joy is found. And what we find through this fellowship is God producing a heart of worship. And with fellowship with God and a heart of worship, we see this capacity for living in obedience to his word. D.L. Moody said it like this. The Lord gives his people perpetual joy. 
do we get what that is? Do we understand what perpetual joy is? Like it's, it's ongoing joy. It's overflowing joy. It's a joy that never runs dry, regardless of season or circumstance. The Lord gives his people perpetual joy when they walk in obedience to him. That's an incredible idea, man. That's an incredible idea. And I think a lot of the times, if we're really honest, we, we draw back away from calls like what we see in Matthew chapter 7. And this call to obedience and ultimately a call to joy, we back away from them and we pull away from them and we label them as legalistic. When in actuality, it is something that is much much different. We're not talking about a righteousness that pertains to our works, but we're talking about a life that flows from the obedience of Christ and gratitude towards his kindness. This is what Moody points us towards here. Living the Sermon on the Mount as a home is constructed, a home on the firmest of foundations. That is Christ. I'm going to close with one more quote from Richard Foster. I was reading a lot this past week. You guys can always tell because there's like lots of quotes, right? Like in, in what we're talking about on, on Sunday. But Richard Foster, who wrote an incredible book on the practice of spiritual disciplines, which I would encourage you towards, uh, because I think there's a lot of areas of obedience that we don't even understand that we're being disobedient, right? It's We're being disobedient by omission and not so much commission. We don't even know that we're called to these things. Richard Foster says this, just as worship begins in holy expectancy. It ends in holy observance. This informs the way that we go into this next time. If worship does not propel us into greater obedience, then it has not been worship. If worship doesn't propel us into greater obedience, then it has not been worshipped. And so we must ask ourselves, what is it then? Right? Like, what is it? Because as we consider, as we consider the coming of Christ, this Christmas season, right, this season of, of, of Advent, and we sing songs that are familiar to God's people, what we ought to find is that these acts of worship, even what we're participating in corporately now, ought to drive us into a posture of desired obedience because that is what God does within his people. That's what God does within his people. And in just a moment, we're going to approach the table. All right, and we're going to take of the bread and the cup. And in doing so, we're going to remember Right, That this season, that our gathering together today is not simply about Christ's entrance into the world, which was a defined plan before the foundations of the world, a rescue mission from God for his people, but also that it was purposeful. Right, That it was purposeful that this Christ child was born to die, right, to absorb God's wrath due to our rebellion, so that we might be placed firmly upon the rock, that this great exchange might happen, and that we might be recipients of his 
reward. That's what we remember as we go to the table. This is an act of worship. And then we sing a song. And that is an act of worship. And if we do both of those things, okay, and we leave here and we're not encouraged towards internally greater obedience to his word, then we have to ask ourselves, what in the world have we been doing? What have we been doing with our time together? And so let's consider those things. Right? In light of this realization, the joy that we are called into through surrender and repentance, relationship with God through Christ is an eternal joy. It is a long-lasting joy. This is a gospel-informed response. Let us go, as God's people, to the table joyful today because it's Christmas Eve. Because it's Christmas Eve.